like us to turn now for a short while to the passage that we read, Matthew chapter 11. We'll read from the beginning. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went, went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news to preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Particularly the words, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John, John uh, the Baptist is described in many different ways. Uh, some talk of him as the bridge figure that spans uh, the two points between the Old Testament and the New. The link between the Old Testament and the New. We know that the scripture tells us that his ministry was preparatory, that he was the forerunner, the one who was to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And his preaching was preaching that had at its heart the words repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had a large following. We're not sure, and I don't think, I can't say that I came across any certainty of the number of disciples that he had. Some suspect that he even had more followers than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a formidable character. You can imagine the description that we have of him just a physical description is sufficient to alert us to the fact that people would be drawn to him. What he had to say cultivated interest in him. And I suppose inevitably people followed him. Those who were spiritually minded suspected no doubt that there was more to him than was outwardly obvious. If they understood the scripture or had any knowledge of the scripture, they may have thought that uh, John the Baptist was someone of great significance in whatever way they understood that to be so. But at this point in his life, he is in prison. And the reason for his imprisonment is that he has offended Herod, the Tetrarch. He has challenged him as to his um, morality. And uh, he's uh, pointed out 
his accountability to God because of that and for his for his uh, endeavours he is sent to prison and he sends a message to Jesus by way of his disciples and the message we read together he wants to find out whether Jesus is indeed who he suspects him to be. Now, the message itself has puzzled many. And there are many suggestions as to what John is intending by way of seeking the knowledge that he has sought from Jesus himself. For example, uh, various and I, w- I wouldn't uh, I-, I would say that most of these opinions come from highly respected uh, preachers of the gospel and teachers in their own right and they voiced their opinion as to what John was seeking when he sent his disciples to question Jesus I've selected four of them John had no fears but his followers did. And because of the fear of his followers, he sought to address that by getting an answer from Jesus. This was the beginning of John's own personal faith. So in order for his faith to grow, he needed answers that would strengthen his faith. And this was the way he went about to do that. John's own faith had weakened a little and it needed strengthening. Finally, John's patience had failed, but not his faith. Now, these are just suggestions. They're suggestions because people are puzzled. Why did this man, who is so impressive as a preacher in his own right, someone who is so knowledgeable that he is in his ministry, clearly evidencing an inside information, if you like, that he is on the fringes of something remarkable, that someone is coming and he is but a harbinger of that. He is someone who is just going to, to open the road for this person. And how could he end up in a situation where Uh, he wants to find out whether this person is Jesus or not. Well, we have to look at the answer that Jesus gives. And uh, Jesus, he does one thing. We We saw it in the morning. We saw how constantly The Lord Jesus Christ points us in the direction of his own word. Points us to the truth in order to gain access to the truth. And the the fact of the matter is that uh, situationally, uh, it's very difficult for us just now for us to imagine the spiritual temperature of that time. 
we have uh, historically seen a period between the two testaments where God was virtually silent. He had little to say to the world. And there was a time there when, when people were maybe slumbering and uh, you couldn't say that there's much that, that is said to us about God working in the world in an identifiable way. That's not to say he wasn't. But uh, in comparison with what had gone before and in comparison with what was going to happen, there was virtual silence. But now, with, uh, with the New Testament era beckoning, there was clearly a, a stimulus to interest. You know, when you think about the birth of Jesus and you, you read there about the life of, of those who were waiting patiently for the coming of the Messiah and the faith that was required for these individuals to exist anticipating the arrival in the world of the one that they were longing to see. And we were just, you're just uh, trying to figure out, try to understand what the spiritual temperature of the age was. And John is uh, at the centre of that. And the centre of what John was looking towards is the promised Messiah. The Old Testament was full of, of, of God's word directing attention to the one who was to come, the one who was to be uh, the saviour of the world, the one who was going to address the problem of sin in the world. And uh, the scripture was pointing them to the Messiah and things that were true of the Messiah. Now, when Christ responds to John, his question is really, are you the Messiah? We've been waiting for you. If you are he, well, surely you'll tell us if you are he. Are we on the right track? Are we, are we in the right place? Are you really the person that we're waiting for? That's really what's at the heart of John's dilemma. Some people think that his imprisonment has taken away from his faith and his imprisonment has deprived him of any confidence that he has that what he has been doing hitherto has been of any merit. But he was the, he was the, the forerunner. He was the person that God had entrusted with a specific message concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the question some people have is, well, has John lost his faith? But Jesus responds to the question, Whoever is going to benefit from it, whether it's John or his disciples or the world around, the answer that he gives is from his own word. And he, he reminds John of what the word says 
about himself. There are several quotations that come from the book of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 29, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, verse 4, Behold, your God will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And so on. Chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and so on. All Jesus has to do is remind John of what the scripture is saying. And he reminds John of what the scripture is saying by telling him through the disciples, this is what you're seeing. This is the scripture being fulfilled. And John needs to hear that. John needs to understand that. Well, the part I want to focus on particularly this evening is this statement that Jesus makes, which is in keeping with everything else that that is said. John can understand that these elements all testify to the reality of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is who he says he is. And the evidence is there for all to be seen. But there is also this part that we need to understand is equally true. And it is found in verse 6 there. We see it in these words. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And it's an interesting statement in many ways. But it's at the heart of who Jesus is and how people respond to him. So I want us to think very briefly about the offence that Jesus causes. It wasn't something that was simply restricted to the time of John the Baptist. It is something that is connected with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus, because of who he is, will offend. Jesus, because of who he is, will say what will offend. Jesus, because of who he is, inevitably stirs up a sinner to respond because of the offence that's caused. I wasn't terribly sure about the order of this, but I don't think the order is all that important. But there's three certain things I want us to think about. 
the offence that Jesus causes by what he says. And what he says particularly about himself. If we understand correctly what Jesus was saying about himself was grounds for John's confidence to be encouraged. It is also plain that there are those who hear what Jesus has to say about himself, that there are those who are encouraged by it, but there are those who are offended by it. If we think about, for example, a well-known portion of scripture, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, again from the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. The prophet there, almost without doubt, takes us to the foot of the cross. And the description that he gives us is of a dying criminal. And there's no doubt when you read these words in the prophecy of Isaiah, that the person that is described there is dying. And that he is dying for sin. Just read a few verses. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes... We are healed. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And there's no doubt when you read these words that there's, there's a, a broad opportunity for application and reference to the scripture that explains to us what these words mean. But whoever that person is, and I know who he is, and I'm sure some of you know who he is, I believe that this passage is talking about the person of the Saviour, Jesus Christ. But notwithstanding whether we believe or not, that or not, we know that the person of which that passage speaks is someone who the context suggests to us is being put to death. His death is certain, and the reason for his death is sin. And the suffering servant of which this passage speaks about is someone who is the anointed servant of God appointed to suffer by God. Now, when Christ applies the words of that prophecy to himself, it is something that immediately people find difficult to accept. Even those who were his own disciples, when Jesus spoke to, him, to them about the necessity of his dying on the cross, 
even without introducing into their thinking the element of the cross as the instrument of death, the very thought that he had to die was something that they could not accept readily. You remember uh, when Jesus uh, spoke to the disciples extensively about his death. In chapter 6 of John, we read there how Jesus introduced this to his disciples, not for the first time, but at great length he spoke to them about the need for his dying. And he speaks to them things that he, they find difficult to understand, but most especially they find difficult to accept. He says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the Father ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, there's no doubt that when you read these words, there's difficulty attached to them. There's difficulty in understanding exactly, and even theologians today, when you, when you enter into their discussions on what Jesus was teaching there, there's a doubt in their mind as to the exact meaning of what he's, he has to say. But when you read on, Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do not take offense at this. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And again, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What he had to say to them about himself as this person who was to die for sin in order that the sinner may have life through him was something that he taught and taught regularly but to those who, who he taught it to it was offensive. They found it unacceptable that such was the truth. Now remember, he was teaching the disciples initially, but what he has to say, everyone must get to hear. And everyone who is confronted with this truth, as Jesus taught it, is not prepared to accept it because of the offence that it causes. Peter refused to believe. And Jesus said to him, Peter, if you do not believe what I have to say to you, you will have no part in me. Because without believing this, without believing this truth concerning me, if you have none of this, I will have none of you. 
And later on, when he began to preach the gospel, he, the same truth was, was repeatedly brought to our attention. What Jesus has to say about himself as the sacrifice for sin, as the one who had to die in the place of sinners, in order that those who were sinners might have life through him. Naturally speaking, there is offence there to every person who comes face to face with it because of what it implies about themselves. Now, maybe you're not one of them, but most clearly you are wrong if you think that. When Paul uh, preached the gospel, he made this point. We preach, he says, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and, and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now to this day, there are those who out and out refuse to accept the necessity of the cross, the divine imperative that lies behind the coming of Christ in order to go to the cross. It is offensive to them because uh, we know that what he said about himself stimulated anger in many. And there are those who don't like to hear, even in the preaching of the gospel today, they don't want to, to have any mention of blood, no mention of life, been surrendered willingly in order that others might receive life through him. So the gospel, essentially, what it says about Christ is a gospel that brings offence to many. The second thing that we can see here is this, that very often we come across people offended by what Jesus has to say about them. Not just what he has to say about what uh, he is in the world to do, but what he has to say to those for whom he came into the world to do it. Many people are offended when he speaks to them through his word. Jesus says and can't but say what the scripture says. He is the scripture personified, if you like. He is the word made live. He is God speaking to us in, in every possible way that you can think. But he applies God's word to those who are before him. And he can't but say to those who are before him that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He has to say it. Otherwise, his own race and entry is, is uh, challenges. His reason for coming into the world is suspect. 
The reason for him being born, the son of God becoming man, is, is clearly something that is unnecessary if it is not true that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we go to Matthew's Gospel, for example, and speak there the words of Jesus as he speaks them on the Sermon on the Mount, and he reminds us of, of the damage wrought by sin, the demands that, that, that being under God's law places us under. We find again and again, through what Jesus is saying, that by our own endeavours, we will never secure life everlasting. Because we are constantly and repeatedly coming short of the glory of God. And if you go through the Sermon on the Mount and remind yourself of what Jesus has to say, we're coming face to face with the, uh, the fact of our own shortcoming. And nobody wants to be reminded of that. Nobody wants to, uh, to, to come face to face with their own inadequacies, but that's what God's word does. If Jesus becomes personal to us, it becomes worse. You know, we're all very happy. You're quite content there saying, well, the minister is saying you're all sinners. Well, fair enough. Everybody beside you is a sinner and you're comfortable in that place where everybody's the same as you. And uh, you're not really being singled out. You're not being isolated. But when Jesus isolates you, when Jesus speaks to you about your sin, your personal sin, your accountability as an individual to God, then it becomes harder to bear. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well of Samaria, you can see how he interacted with her. He spoke to her directly and personally, and he delved into the innermost secrets that she thought were secrets. And she exposed, he exposed her heart, and he revealed the, the true nature of her immorality. And he dealt with her as an individual and as a sinner. And if he had left it at that, she would have been deeply offended by the knowledge that he had offered and the willingness that he had to, to reveal it to whosoever. But he revealed it with a purpose in view. And when he comes as the physician of souls to an individual, it is no surprise that as a, as a physician, he sometimes probes and prods in the places that we are most, most uh, that we suffer most pain from. You know, if you need to go for surgery, and uh, you 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 go for for a, a pre-operation examination from the surgeon. And if he sits on the other side of the table to you and, and he hums and he haws and he looks at his notes and he doesn't do anything else, 
you might not be too convinced that he's going to be doing anything. But he asked you to come and lie down on his couch. And then he comes and he, he points his finger at where you think the problem is. And he prods it. You don't like the prodding, but you know at least that he's in the right area. And when he's going to put you on a surgeon's uh, couch, that he's going to do the right thing. Now, when Jesus is dealing with a sinner in this way, he deals with the individual, and he deals with the individual's need. And whatever the greatest need is, he exposes it, and he points to it, and he reveals it to you so that you know that he knows. And when he is about this business, sometimes you think, well, what right has he to do this? I remember, you know, sometimes ministers have to, well, they're they're under shepherds, you know that. They're sent out to preach God's word. And I'm not sure if it happens as much today, but I remember when I first started off hearing of ministers preaching and those who were sitting in the, in the pews, wriggling virtually under the preaching of the word. I remember on more than one occasion hearing of individuals, and they were convinced, and no one would convince them otherwise, that somebody had told the minister what was going on in their lives. Somebody had exposed their innermost thoughts to the minister, and there he was standing in the pulpit and, and speaking about them to everybody. But it was the Lord. The Lord was working through his servants and saying, this is what's wrong, and I know it's wrong, and this is what must happen in order for this wrong to be put right. And Jesus sometimes, as he introduces you to the, to the medicine of his own saving love he will need to hurt and he'll need to wound and he will need to make you feel uncomfortable and that uncomfortableness will make you feel an offence because of who he is Jesus speaks so that people may be offended by what he has to say to them, but always with the end view in end in view that they will learn that what he has to say to them is for their own good. The third thing, and I'll just briefly say something about this, that there are those who stumble and are offended by Christ because of what is true about himself, because of who he is. Who he is. He is the alone saviour of the world. And not many people want to hear that. If you say to a person, there is but one saviour. There is but one redeemer. And every single solitary soul in this world needs that redeemer. And that redeemer is Christ. That's not what they want to hear. What do they want to hear? Well, they want to hear there are many roads to God. And you can pick your own. Salvation is not really something that I need to think about. 
Salvation is something that's an invention of the church. Salvation is something that only those who are, who are saturated in the Gospels need to think about. I'm no better or no worse than anybody else. But Christ says, I am the way, the truth and the life. God's way of salvation is by way of the cross and it is Christ's way or no way at all. Why do I say that? Well, the Bible says it. Peter, the apostle, and Peter, the apostle, was someone who, who was in a very difficult school. You could say it was the school of hard knocks. But he learned he learned much in that school. And when he was finished, or when God was finished with him, and sent him out to be a preacher of the gospel to others, he was able to say that uh, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ says, you are in need of a saviour. Man says, no. Christ says, I am that saviour. Man says, no. Christ says, I don't care if you're saying no. I am this saviour that God has given to the world. You know, there are many people and they have in the words of, words of Charles Dickens, great expectations, great aspirations. The kingdom of Jews thought that there was going to be a Jewish king. The Gentiles would be their servants and so on and so forth. And when Jesus came on the scene, he didn't fit the bill. He wasn't. He wasn't a king. He was a pauper, pretty much. He was impoverished, a Nazarite, a Gal Galilean. You read through there and you'll see prejudice through all their reckoning. But Jesus saves sinners, and that's the thing. And that must be right. Some of you are not saved but you're working at it. Isn't that good? You're much better than you were a year ago. Perhaps a lot more than you were five years ago or ten years ago. Well, if that's what you think, you're wrong. The strange thing about the Christian is that they're probably worse today than they were a year ago. Worse in what sense? Well, in the sense that God has worked in their life to expose 
to them the need that they have a saviour. To expose their heart as something that's desperately wicked and that they are still discovering truths concerning their heart that they never knew possible. And what has that done for them? Well, it's done this. It's taken away from them any foolish notion that they can never, any way, ever gain salvation by their own endeavours. The longer lived the Christian is, the more convinced they are of their own foolishness and their own, the futility of their own endeavours at working out salvation for themselves. And Christ says, if you don't believe that, that must mean that you are offended by what I have done. You are offended by the truth that I teach concerning that heart that the Christian is discovering more and more and sorrowing over. You're offended by that teaching. You're offended by the thought that Christ will ultimately be the one before whom you stand at the last and give account. You're offended by a great many things about Christ. But it is still Christ that we will answer to. And I pray that everyone here would never be so offended by Christ that you don't come to seek him for yourself that you may discover him to be the saviour that he has shown himself to be and that he proves himself to be to those who have trusted in him. May he bless these few thoughts to us. Let us pray. Ever blessed God, we give thanks that even though in our experience when your word came to, to us and, and showed us what we were by nature, we rebelled against that word and we were offended by that word. When Christ came to us and spoke to us personally, directly, we were offended by that, by that conversation, by that dialogue. And yet we give thanks that we ever had it and that you ever spoke to us in that wise. We pray that whatever your word says about you that we would listen to and that we would not remain as those who are in the world and who despise the word and who will have nothing to do with Christ. As your word tells us, there were those who, who preferred someone else to Christ and who, who desired to crucify Christ before that one. Lord, help us to understand the need that we have of such a saviour as your word presents to us. Guard us, keep us, protect us, forgive our sins in Jesus. Amen.